Hi everyone, how are you doing? My name's Gareth Duffin and welcome to Know Your Shift, a podcast where we explore the challenges, opportunities and impact of change in all of our lives. Change can be unsettling and often difficult to navigate, but it's also a part of growth and progress. On this show, we'll be talking to experts, business leaders and everyday people about their experiences with change and how they've overcome obstacles to embrace it. Whether you're looking for inspiration, practical tips, or just a fresh perspective on change, we get actionable advice. So let's dive into the world of change, embrace the unknown, and help you to change your direction. Hi, Richard. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, We always start with the same first question. So what is the hardest change that's happened to you in your life? Well, it's an absolute pleasure to join you on this. And I just said to you, I am apprehensive about this because I'm normally talking about we, the group, never me. So <laughs> this is going to be a, a sort of interesting experience. If I can do a couple of changes, really, one personal, one work-wise. Personal-wise, um, my eldest son was born with Perlin syndrome, which means he had a missing pectoral muscle and a very small hand. And up to the age of about 11, He had loads of operations, which he hated, and none of them worked. It just didn't help him at all. And then I met a very clever surgeon in Leeds, a Dr. K, and he said to me, he said, and my wife, he said, look, I've got an idea. We'll take his toes off and put them on his hand. I thought, bloody hell, that's interesting. And And I said, would it work? He said, yeah. So then it was the interesting conversation, which is absolutely true, so I went, he said, you better tell your lad. Um, I said, okay. Um, so that's an interesting conversation to have with any 11-year-old. I said. So I said, right, son, how about this surgeon we've met him? He's really good. He's going to take your toes off and stick them on your hand to give you a bit more of a working hand. What are you thinking, lad? Because we're obviously from Yorkshire, I'd call him lad. Um, and he honestly replied, he said... Um, Will I be able to pick my nose with my toes then? <laughs> and he <laughs> did. Yeah, that's about the measure of it. He said, "Yeah, I'm in." And um, it wasn't that easy doing it. It was like a ten-hour operation. Right. Whereas parents, you just, what the hell do you do for ten hours? Um, and it worked. And then I'd like to tell you the stories of him bullied at school and everything. But he wasn't. He never was. He had a great childhood. So um, yeah. No impact at all, but it was a big change. Having worried about operations and not working, and they stuck with one operation, they stuck a load of metal down in his hand. And while he was in the primary school, all this metal poked out. Oh, wow. We hadn't really told the school about it, and they just brought him into the nurse and said, oh, no, your son's made of metal. There's all this metal poking out of his hand. But anyway, long, long time ago. And then for sort of, business changes um when i was under 30 i was a, a young partner chartered surveyor in a firm and I, I had a sort of i was early as being a partner which is great and i remember having a partner's meeting and they said well well richard this is your partner share in the company and it was a minus and i thought well, I, I seem to be working all hours god sends and that's a minus and they said well Give it another five, ten years, that'll come into a positive. Oh, right, okay. So I got home, I said, right, I'm leaving. That's it. My wife said, we've got a big mortgage, we've got two very young children. Don't leave. 
that's going to be hard. I thought, no, I can't do this. So I went back the next day and I said, right, I'm leaving. Um, month's notice, I'm off. I'm going to set my own business up, which they all chuckled. And then they made a mistake, which is kind of a schoolboy error, I thought, at the time. They said, look, right, Rich, you're going to work every single day of your notice. But yeah, fine. So for one month, I took every single client with me, <laughs> bar one who I didn't like that much anyway. And um, surprisingly, the consultancy that we set up in 1992 worked really well until I sold it um, 15, 16 years ago. Um, so that was probably the biggest, the hardest two conversations. Telling my lad he's having his toes on his hand, a bit bizarre. Um, and then telling my wife saying, right, I know we've got a big mortgage. I know we've got two young children, but I'm leaving. I've had it. Those are, that's two big things. There's plenty more, but those are the <laughs> things that I thought, well, yeah, I'll mention them. Yeah, they're uh, definitely two big periods of change. And I guess when you were talking about, I think um, you said your son was 11 when you met the surgeon that um, eventually did that surgery. So that that 11 years can't have gone past quickly, uh, maybe as quickly as you described in, in the conversation. So I guess, you know, like how, what for people listening that haven't gone through something like that, you know, what, what is that like in terms of looking for, you know, because, you know, now if, if, you know, I've got two young children um, and if there's something wrong with them, I, I spend most of the time on Google trying to find out what's wrong with them. But, you know, talk me through sort of what that's like looking for a solution when, you know, everybody's trying different things, you know, how did you, how did you cope it, with that? It was really hard actually, because at the time um, you there was nobody actually. There is now a, a group, a Poland syndrome group, which okay. my son is an ambassador for, which is great. There wasn't that. There was no support. The only person we knew that had it was Jeremy Beadle. Okay, and yeah. I wasn't on first name terms with him um, yeah. ever. And um, so there was, there was really very little. And we didn't quite know why it happened and how it happened. Uh, the fortunate thing was that it didn't seem to impact on him. Um, and as disabilities go, I hate to say it, it's not the biggest thing. Mm. Um, you, you know, the, I, I grew up in a generation where there was the thermidamide, I can't say it, where they had really yeah. small hands, etc., and and that was certainly more noticeable. But it, 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 yeah, it was a challenge, and it was always at the back of your mind: well, how do we solve this, and what career will happen out of this? Yeah. Um, would it affect you? And and there's that thing, will he be bullied at school? But he wasn't. Yeah. And going on to the other change you talked about. So um so yeah, when doing research for this episode, you and you touched on it in in first question. So you you set up your own consultancy very early. Um and you know, you talked about that that was because you um weren't happy with where you were. But talk to me about setting that up at I mean, I don't know how old you were when you set up that. that Twenty nine. So, 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 yeah, that's that's pretty young to uh, to to go and set up on your own. How did you um, how did you do it? Well, I selected a partner I knew who I'd worked <laughs> with many many years before, and I said, well, not many years before because I was quite young, um, and I persuaded him, and 
we set about who were our clients would be, mainly banks, solicitors. And it was really exciting. Absolutely tremendously exciting. And I'll I'll never forget it. And but there is that realization when you've done it. You're sat there, you've got your staff, you've got the building. Then you think, well, if nobody actually the phone doesn't ring, the the instructions came on the phone and the and by post, the instructions came up. <laughs> imagine that. Um <laughs> if that doesn't happen, who pays the mortgage? What happens? Who feeds the kids? Who's it was a sort of it's it was exciting. And I wouldn't change a minute of it because I loved it. And then when the first job comes in and then you're busy and then you're working at a weekend, God, it's worked. This is brilliant. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. And it's funny you describe it as exciting because obviously I set up my own business from nearly a year ago now. And 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 I can I can definitely um you know, you talk, I talk to a lot of people that are in business for themselves, both on this podcast and, and outside. And, you know, people talk about the the unpredictability of the income um, and and the pressure of if you don't get on the phones, <laughs> your mortgage isn't getting paid. But I like the way you describe it as exciting <laughs> rather than the... <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's an element of, oh, hell, what have I done? <laughs> and then um, I always remember um because we were working in the city and um and i was we were a bit short of work we're doing good and then i went driving down a sort of a slope a road in the city center and this solicitor stopped me because he knew me and he's and i wound down the window and he's a real character absolute character sadly died now and i wound my window down couldn't afford electric windows um and he's anyway he said to me trawling for work are you richard <laughs> I said, yeah, I am. To be fair to him, he rang me up and gave me a job the next day. So, um... <laughs> oh, fantastic! And then you, you sold. Obviously, that became part of a national company, and then you sold your shares in two thousand six and and joined Kexkill. That was a big challenge. Um, I want. I was sort of. I sold my shares because I was a bit bored. To be honest, I was bored being a surveyor. Um, and we, it was boom years. We had lots and lots of work in. And I, I just wanted something else. And and I knew the chairman. I've known the chairman for many years. And, and he was an inspiring, what's known as a bootstrap entrepreneur. I didn't know what that word meant, but it means you pull yourself up from your boots. He came to the country when he was five as an immigrant. And he, and he you know, he's he's done incredibly well. So that's, and I always knew he was a hard taskmaster. And so, yeah, I, I joined it. And we had an opportunity to go to Germany, um, which was a real learning curve for us. Um, we also partly were the founder of a fund, the Landericus Fund, which we've since sold. But Germany, we're in the student market in the UK and we're in the multifamily business. We still are in Germany and we did buy some student assets. But there's a big crossover of learning because it's a rented culture in Germany, which it has and it probably going to become more of a rented culture in the UK. And the things that really resonated and made me understand buildings was it's not the building, it's the people. And it's the person closest to the building that makes it work. It's not the asset manager. It's not somebody sat behind an Excel spreadsheet. It's the caretaker. And if you have multifamily building, we say 30 apartments, 
the thing that makes it absolutely tick is a caretaker. And when I used to go meet these caretakers um, with my really poor broken German, um, there was one in particular who was massive, lovely guy, lived in, works, and he was outside picking up cigarette butts from the grass that he just mowed. And I thought, yes, that's attention to detail. And he kind of said, indicated to me, if anybody else drops a cigarette butt on my grass, then I'm going to have it. <laughs> but that building, always full. Everything got, and it still is always full. And when you get a poor a caretaker who doesn't care, then everything slips. And I think that's a message for the purpose-built student accommodation sector. It's the people in the buildings. Um, it's the it's the it's the cleaner it's the maintenance man it's the first point of contact and they are as valued as anybody in the company because that without them the buildings don't work and it's and it doesn't matter what age you are we're a long long established company we're 46 years old so we've been in the sector a long time and the people working in this company are having their 25th not wedding anniversary, but the 25th anniversary working for Kexiel. And that, I like that. Uh, that's a good, that's a good sign. So talk to me about Kexiel. So um, most, a, a lot of our audience work in PBSA or, or, or in multifamily and property, but if they're not familiar with Kexiel and what you're about, talk to me about Kexiel. Well, we're, uh, so we were set up a long time ago. Um, and it's a slow growth that you set up a long time ago. You, so you set up with nothing. We have we are a completely private company. There are no external shareholders. There's no private equity. There's no. We haven't listed, or we could, but we haven't. Uh, and so far, we've resisted private equity involvement. Um, so everything we do, we decide. I took over as the group managing director 10 years ago, um, which I should have put down as a big change. And that was after a health incident of the of the chairman. It was a serious health incident. Um, and you know, when he'd come out of surgery, he said, look, you're taking over. And that was interesting because we were an SME, 90 employees. Wasn't everybody, wasn't, not everybody was thinking, wow, great, Rich, you're in there now. Not everybody thought that. Um, so it was three months of changing. Um, and this isn't a swear word because it's a book. I just grabbed this book before the um, before I came on. I read the Financial Times every Saturday. I'm not bright enough to read it in the week, but I read it the Saturday edition. And 10 years ago, this book was recommended. I don't know if you can see it. <laughs> uh, the No Arsehole, Arsehole Rule. Sorry. And I read it, short book, a bit repetitive, but um, it was recommended by the FT. And I realized, well, I'm a bit of one, but not fully because I understand that I might be a bit of one. And it's all about building a civilized workplace. And that's what we've done. And the chairman made a brilliant recovery. We speak on the hour every hour, every day of the year, even wow. Christmas Day. And he comes in... Um, one morning a week at 6.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. And I've got a lovely office here, and it's called the Plotting Room. And there's a small desk in the corner of which our chairman comes on a Tuesday morning. 
And that's what we do. We plot our next moves. And because there's no other shareholders, we can say, let's, shall we do this? Yeah, let's have a vote on it. Do you want to do it, Mike? Yeah, I'll do it as well then. And we do it. And I like that. We don't have to go back and justify ourselves. And that's really how the work, the companies we've changed over, certainly over the past 10 years, were more PBSA orientated. And that's not large PBSA. Um, that's smaller. We like 50 beds, 100 beds, small halls, 130 beds. We like that because you can make them quite individual. And we're not high end. Um, our service, I'd like to think, is high end. But we're not. In, well, you know that there are groups out there that serve really just the high-end international community, which is great. I wouldn't want to be beholden or to have that amount of exposure. Um, we st we were at one point the largest HMO owner of student housing in the UK. We're not anymore. Um, others have taken over and we've disposed of assets and we are predominantly small halls residents. We do have some impact of the Renters Act, which we'll probably get onto later. And I like the makeup of the company. We're in nine locations in the UK. Um, and we've been in some of these locations a long time. Liverpool, for example. We did have 60-odd houses in Liverpool. We've binned them, one of our words. We've binned them. <laughs> Two or three years ago, we binned them and just moved into PBSA in Liverpool. And we're finding the Liverpool market very buoyant. And we're doing really well there. And I like our people. So I, I think to summarize, we're more in the for affordable end. And we are staff heavy, is what one private equity guy said to me. You're staff heavy. You could do it. We could do all this from London, you know. Um, and we're geographic. And another, that's another thing. We're geographically challenged. We're not in London. I guess that. You know that that question, and you may have answered it by by what you've just said. But is that being able to be in control? Why? Because I'm sure private equity firms have been interested over the years, probably many. Um, you know, is that the reason why why you've resisted you know, taking on external investment, or is it we just not who you are? It. We flirt with it, Gareth, because. <laughs> um, we always feel tiny. Our group is worth a quarter of a billion, which in some circles you stick your chest out, yeah, worth a quarter of a billion. And then I think about it, and that's probably one building in London. Um, so we're not that big, but we kind of, I feel like we make an impact. And, I, and I, everybody in our civilized workplace, not always civilized, is happy doing what they do. And I, I just, yeah, I, we have resisted, but we do flirt with private equity. And because we want to be bigger, you think, well, we need to get to half a billion. You want to get to a billion. We like our model. And I do recall somebody coming to see us. Um, I don't want to libel him, um, but probably a four years ago, pre-pandemic. And he said, that, yeah, I love the model. Absolutely brilliant. I could get you half a billion pounds a year to spend to transform your group. And we thought about it for a day. And we went, well, I can't spend half a billion without buying things we don't want. Yeah. Um, and about and it would really change things. And then, you know, I come 
to work to meet our chairman at 6.30 in the morning. Not because I have to, because I enjoy doing it. And would I enjoy doing it if somebody's putting half a billion in a year, the control would go completely and we wouldn't be able to do ridiculous things. And quite like doing stupid things, really. <laughs> so I'm um, talking about PBSA and you're... You're in some quite tough market, well, what I call tough markets, traditionally tough markets, I should probably say, in the UK. Um, so, but, you know, as you said, Liverpool has been quite buoyant. How is How have you found the market this year in, in the cities that you're in? Um, buoyant. Um, there's there'd be some massive changes in the market. And in lower tier university locations, Generally, in some of those locations, the properties are cheaper, the land values are cheaper, so that you can charge lower rents. And um, so it doesn't impact as much. If you're looking at major Russell Group locations, everything's more expensive. Um, we found we, it's probably been the worst 12 months, um, more so than the pandemic. The pandemic, we were kind of all in it together. We didn't enjoy the pandemic. But what I did, did like, well, I say enjoy. I enjoyed the bit of planning and working out how we we're going to best do it, how we look after the tenants, setting up a hardship fund, doing the right thing, and still being able to trade profitably. That was entertaining and challenging. The last 12 months, interest rates, trustonomics, um, planning delays have really impacted on us. Um Pre-pandemic, you know, you put a planning application, you'd expect it to be a little bit late. These days, I've got five outstanding planning applications and they're months and months mm. late. And in our world, everything is time critical. Mm. You want everything ready for a September start or worst case scenario, January start. And there's no concept of time in the planning departments. And I'm not blaming them specifically because they may, they're probably understaffed. And I did read somewhere in Property Week where they said um, nobody goes, no no teenager goes to sleep on a night dreaming about being a, a town planner, which is probably true. Um, but shaping the built environment is a really big deal. And it's a pity people don't go to bed dreaming about being a town planner that does sound awful sorry town planners but <laughs> i think it's a great job but the delays are unacceptable and are holding or just us back they're holding uk plc back because if we're doing if we're going for planning that means we're going to spend money we're going to employ local builders that money's going to go into the economy and that's not happening and really it's wrong and that's where it does need solving. And it's not been solving. You tinker around the edges, it's not been solved. And that's probably uh, contributing to the to the affordability crisis for students as well, given that their supply is constrained. Massively constrained. And the costs of building, the costs of converting are horrific to what they were four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um and sometimes you look at something, we buy something, and then as the planning takes 18 months rather than three months for something straightforward, the costs have gone astronomical. And then when you come out of the development, interest rates have gone up, 
it's not the same animal. Um, so the last 12 months have been tough, but we're coming out of it that rents have gone up. We're not making super profits from rents going up. As the papers would say, well, actually, they just we made a loss this year because utility costs were so expensive, energy costs, um, wages have gone up, um, and we've never skimped on wages. We felt as we want to retain people, and um, we we just thought, well, actually, we're going to make a loss, but we're still going to give you what you deserve because you put so much into the group. But moving forward, we've capped our gas, we've capped our electricity, we've pretty much fixed every interest rate. So we feel quite confident in the next, well, very confident in the next 12 months. And our rent went up to reflect it. So talking about rents, rents are going up and going up significantly, particularly, you know, in the higher end of the market. Um, is that sustainable or is it, as some would describe a bubble that is going to burst at some point where students cannot find affordable accommodation near to the university they want to study at? I think it's a major problem and it, it's not been solved by anyone really. Um, and I think the great shame is, and it's a tragedy that some people are not going to the university of choice because of funding, because of affordability. And the worst case scenario for them is that they stay in their home city and go to the local university. And you you would say, well, you, you would say that, Rich, because they don't want accommodation. They're going to live at home. But really, the rite of passage for somebody after their A-levels is to leave home, to go study elsewhere, to make their best friends, to have their best and their worst experiences. That's what, and if you don't get that, staying up, I don't know if there's any statistics to say if, people who live in the hometown and go to the hometown university, if there's a greater chance that they don't actually finish the degree, I'd like to know if, if that exists. I don't know if it does, because I'd like to, th or, but like, I think that it probably, there's more of a chance because they're not forced into friendships. If you, you know, if, if I'm in Yorkshire and I'm sent off to London to university, I'm going to make friends. But if I'm at home, I'm going to stay with the same friends I go for a beer with. And that rite of passage, it's it's needed. It's it's something. And then you think about the post, international postgraduates who are coming to a different country. And that, I admire that, because in some cases, the Indians, Nigerians, the whole family group at home are paying for them to come to the UK. Uh, and they're paying good money for the privilege of coming to the UK. And that's, I admire that. And that's tough for them. And I've sort of learned more and more about that as that market's developed. So if I put you in number 10 tomorrow, Richard, what would you do to solve it? Um, I'd have a quiet word with Suella Breverman, um, but it would be off record and it wouldn't <laughs> be pleasant. Um <laughs> And it's, that's a weird thing. I, mean, I like you You bring that up. I've never been much of a political animal. You sort of just got on with it and it's happened all around you. But the past few years, I have had my head in my hands thinking, what the hell are you saying? Really? 
international students to the UK bring in, you might correct me on this figure, £41 billion a year. That's quite a big sum, really. And then there's all the knock-on effects of friendships and business interactions. And it it is something I've increasingly felt strongly about to the extent we had a 12-month journey of um, international students starting was last year in July, I took a group of postgraduates on a Yorkshire trip, which ended up in us booking out Castle Howard, which was featured on a Channel 4 documentary, all by luck. And that was fantastic. And then we that carried on. We, we arranged a meal with the Admiral of the Humber. That sounds good. And, a pers- and they had that. And it was just like they were meeting was just to see them so valued because they were they're paying thousands to be here away from their homes and and really individual stories are, are heartbreaking in some cases and then that followed up by a recent trip to the RICS roof that's the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors roof and a meeting about opportunities there then incredibly I got an audience with the I wrote this down so I didn't forget what they call her, the chair of the Home Office Affairs Select Committee, actually saw me, big thing, I was obviously told not to say anything, um, and the postgrads with me gave such a fantastic account of their time in the UK and how they were so proud to be here. I sincerely hope that has made a difference. So as a po- I did write to Rishi, never came back. Probably a good thing. <laughs> um, so oh, I wrote a question down here to ask you about. Do we need more regulation or less PBSA in the UK? You'd think because we own a few HMOs, um, I'd be worried. Less bloody regulation. <laughs> Sodom. Um, but regulation is generally good and just for the right reason. Um it's hard. I mean, the fire regulations are hard when you've got some cladding on building, actually getting somebody to give you an, a report that you actually understand. Um, I like Unipol. We've been with Unipol for years, and they are really are a sensible voice for the industry. And the government I does appear to listen to Unipol, and I have massive respect for everybody at Unipol, and it's that's going to their meetings you come away think well somebody is actually on our side and saying the right things so yeah um regulation in all walks of life will get more and more it does restrict some people going into it and but it's like estate agents everybody hates estate agents Landlords, just the same, isn't it, really? And then the solicitors. Now politicians, fortunately, the last four years, politicians are way up on that list of um, everybody hates them. Um, but we, landlords, a dirty word. You're a greedy landlord. It's always, you know, what do you prefix before landlord? Greedy. And that's not the case. In the vast majority, in the people I sit around with at Unipol meetings, they're all doing the best thing. Um, our cleaners are suicide trained, mental health trained, because they're the first point of call. 
to meeting somebody if there's somebody staying in the room and they haven't come out ooh, is that right um that's a human thing and our staff are quite scary really some of them when you look at them um they're not bright young things some of them because we've been around a long time they're they're pretty scary looking but they would kill for a student and our students know that and they feel like they've got some care around them so yeah more regulation is going to happen we can't do anything about it um it's going to happen isn't it so you've got pbsa in denmark no oh i Which, thought you had sorry. no it's <laughs> very misleading it's true um we decided to go to denmark because we've done very well in germany um we're still in germany we've been there since 2005 2006 what well, 2006 um we got some money together and we were a bit late for the party oh, the pandemic really? broke other as we like to call them the big boys like nido got in there before us they raised a billion way out of our league and everything i was looking at in copenhagen was um snapped up by nido thanks oh, guys wow. um <laughs> And since that time, because there's some very attractive financing out there, that's mm. changed. Financial landscape's changed. So we we failed to buy anything in Denmark. Food, fantastic. People, lovely. Great for a short break, but couldn't buy anything. Um, talking about other investments, um, talk to me about, <laughs> and you said these were entertaining investments. So... At a DNA testing lab. Yeah, when entertaining is one of those words, it can be good or bad. And um, yeah, we, we did sign the first cooperative research development with the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States. That was shortly after the 9-11 um, and they really wanted to reach out. Tony Blair was being lovely to um, Americans. And it, this was all about DNA testing. Would I open a DNA testing lab now? Probably not. Did I learn a lot from it? I've learned some big words, Aspergillus fumigatus, Stachybotrys chitarum. We're all, we did set up a lab and yeah, interesting. We, but the, we were, I still had other business interests which paid the mortgage. Um, good job, really. Um, My main was, question uh, is why? <laughs> well, it was vaguely connected. There was a big scandal in America about toxic mold mold houses buildings and i thought well if i buy the exclusive rights to the dna sequences for this mold the why is i would make a lot of money um and the toxic mold thing in america blew up massively they were knocking buildings down etc but i think in the uk we're a bit more pragmatic bit of mold wipe it off with domestus um and that was um do I do I want to know what it's what it actually is, and will it kill you? No, just wipe it off. Uh, and I did get to know some fascinating people, and I did learn things like a fungal infection is harder to treat than a bacterial infection. And I did buy some very scary books with the scariest photographs you've ever seen. Um, I've still got them, but I don't look at them. Um, and I mean so many questions but one is so a, a chartered surveyor from yorkshire how did you learn to be so entrepreneurial that you wanted to go into into dna testing or or developing property sensors for dry rot 
as um it's kind of connected and you and you're always sort of i think because the day job i could do i didn't particularly enjoy doing some of the day job because it there's many ticking boxes i enjoyed the business side of it thinking well i always used to come in and speak what's the scores on the doors how many jobs have we got in that's the bit that i really enjoyed doing it less so really um i wasn't a hands dirty go and do the survey type of guy i i, I could do them um but i liked the business side more i like set and the thrill of setting it up i really enjoyed that the fact it was successful i enjoyed that became larger met great people other directors i enjoyed that so it's, it's kind of been a bit restless really and i can honestly say since i joined the crexel group i've never felt restless it's just full-on plotting scheming in a good way and because every year it seems you have to reinvent yourself and do something so where does that come from where you're your parents entrepreneurs where you have that sort of it's side or tough call really my my parents were both really sporty okay. um and i remember when i came home from junior high school and i told my dad i said dad i'm captain of the chess club he went oh god are you really none of their sporting attributes passed on to me at all i tried golf utterly rubbish <laughs> and there's nothing and in a kind of sporting rugby league sort of area quite an embarrassment really i could probably made a cheerleader and that's about it so i mean i'm not expecting you to go into any other dna testing labs or anything but what's what's the future for for Kexgill? you know what what's on the horizon we have no plans to sell i don't know who watches this stop sending me emails you're going to sell the group. We're not. Um, the business is something I work with the chairman who's in his seventies and we are, it was this, it will carry on. It's not something that suddenly becomes a sale, a disposal. We want to carry on. We probably want to float at some stage. We need our asset value to be a bit more. We could float on aim, but that, is probably too small now for uh, and to and and for the cost of it won't actually benefit as much. I might be wrong. I'm not an expert, but um, we'd probably like to float on the main market when we get to a sufficient size. I'm surrounded by really good people, um, bright people that help me massively. Um, and our future is that we really enjoy what we're doing, and we enjoy the little things that. We enjoy the deals that make us money. Um, but it's the little things that we do that um, really we all get a kick out of. We opened a, it was a David Bowie-themed house, Spiders from Mars house, and the whole house was completely kitted out. And it was kept away from me. It was my idea. And it wasn't going to cost a lot. And we got artifacts from all around the world. This is purely for my own personal musical taste for when I was growing up. And we got the last remaining spiders from Mars, who was alive. David Bowie had died, the rest. And they've got the last remaining one to open the house. And the house is utterly, re 
ridiculous. It's got great big bowie stripes everywhere. It is, it's like a museum, but mad. And I remember the, the girl that did it, um, one of my colleagues, Jane Scorer, and I'm not a huggy person. I don't like hugging. I'm a bit awkward. So I walked in and looked at it, and I just punched her. So what have you done that for? I said, well, I like it. <laughs> and that was featured on the news and the BBC and everything. And and then we had a, because I remember it, the young ones, um, we had a pop-up concert in there. So a group popped up in the um, kitchen lounge and did a concert. And that was utterly unbelievable and there was somebody i'd invite some people from the university there's a guy in the audience he was crying his eyes out that this group were suddenly in here doing a pop-up concert just like the young ones even though the house has fully ensuited and absolutely brilliant but i can guarantee you it's probably the only cluster house or student accommodation that has leopard skin tiles I can certainly say I've never seen one with leopard skin tiles. I've never seen them, but it it does. You go in the en-suites, they've got leopard skin tiles. I think the shop that sold them thought, I never thought any of you would buy them. (laughs) So forgive me when I say this, Richard, but you've been in the PBSA industry a long time. How's it changed from when you joined to now? Uh, Massively, really. Has it changed for the better? Um. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the standards have got up. There's more appreciation of um, tenant welfare. Um, people talk about communities and creating communities, but I, I do feel that's really hard to do. And it's a transient population. You know, you're, they're there for three years, they're there with you for two years, maybe. And it is hard to create communities, but it has. There's less HMOs, there's less bad landlords around because they can't survive with HMO licensing. Um, I think it's changed for the better. It's challenging now because of planning delays. There's less PBSA because of interest rates going up. There's the shortages in supply. And as I mentioned before, not being able to go to university of choice because of affordability. That's quite a big issue. When I went to Polytechnic, um, now a uni, I got a grant. Government paid me to go and study. Thank you. That all went. Um, so it's it's that that side. I think the affordability needs to be. It's getting worse, and we've all seen the queues in Durham. And um, not every area has sort of an undersupply, um, and that's where the likes of say stew rents give you good data and say, well, actually. There's a lot of PBSA there. There isn't a shortage because the rest of the people want to live in HMOs. And there's still people want to live in HMOs. And it is easy for people in the higher end of PBSA to continually say, well, yeah, well, they don't want to live in HMOs. We're just going to build something here. Sheffield, for example, we're going to build this here. And everybody in the houses will come out and say, fantastic, I'll pay a lot more and I'll live in your PBSA. They don't, in my experience. And there is also the comment, which I did hear, that it's absolutely great that there's less HMSOs. People are coming out of the market because those it releases those houses into the community. Not everywhere it does. If you've got a HMO in some locations, which I know, it's a HMO 
And if there isn't a student in it, there isn't anybody who wants to live in it. And it's not the same everywhere. I mean, I, I'm excluding really big markets like London, which I have no experience of. So, yeah, it has changed. And, I mean, at, at the time of us recording this, the Renters' Reform Bill, um, I believe that certainly uh, the AST changes still include student housing, but not PBSA. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, Richard. I think You're absolutely where, right. I think that's where we currently are. Um, what's that going to do to people, landlords in the industry that aren't in, say, PBSA? We've converted a lot of ours into PBSA. So, I mean, uh, the exposure to us is less, but it's not going to be good. The experience in Scotland, where they'd made this change, meant there was less PBSA in the student market, meant there was massive shortages. When you have a shortage, rent goes up, and that's really not good. Um, it's it's a little bit ill thought out. I don't... Unipol have made some fantastic representations on everyone's behalf. I'm not sure the government are listening, and I'm not sure they really care. Uh, and I think, really, when you come down to the sympathy vote... Um, landlords are way down on that list, really, and that's a bit short-sighted because we're looking, that's going to impact on the student experience, it's going to impact on universities. And so, yeah, I'm a little bit head in hands again about the Renters' Reform Act, um, no fixed-term tenancies, that's going to really mess things up. Um, you can't forward let, it's, it's a problem, and um, people are lobbying. I'm not certain who's listening. Um, PBSA is excluded, as you say. Um, I'd like to mention some politicians. I better not. <laughs> Don't know if they're listening. Hope, I hope, hope they are. They might learn something. Um, yeah. So, you've got two sons. One's an analyst in the city, and the other's a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Yes. How did that happen? I don't know. Um, I absolutely don't know. Yeah, yes, it's yeah, diverse. One lives in Brixton, and the other one owns his own flat in London. You can imagine which one lives in Brixton. Um, <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with Brixton at all. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. How did that happen? And one studied to be what I am, but then changed his mind and quite sensibly became an alternative investment analyst and is in the city. The other one did acting, so he was good at acting. And then when acting jobs are very difficult, because I have absolutely no nepotism, there's nobody, I don't know anybody in the acting world. Um, he's morphed into a stand-up comedian. He's had a stand-up comedian. He's had a great Edinburgh. It's a tough, tough business. And I can tell you as a parent, when you first go see your son who's a stand-up comedian, you think, what am I going to do? Is he? You think is he going to pick on me? What? What happens if there's a heckler? How do I react? Boy, leave my son alone. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's yeah. I'd like to give you advice on that, but I can't. I'm just, I'm just there. It's uh, and I'm just pleased they're both happy, and that's I'm proud of them both. Um, when we were researching the episodes, I asked you about influences on you know, who you took inspiration from. Um, and we'll come on to a couple of people you said, but um, talk to me about the chairman uh, and and what influence they've had on, on your career. I met him 
when I first took a job and I met him in the car park of a firm of chartered surveyors. First thing I said, well, you shouldn't be parking here. Get out. Uh, and the second then when I found out who he was, oh, right. Well, you and I told him, you want to get out with student accommodation, get into commercial. You'll make much more money. That was a mistake as well. And he's forgiven me for saying that to him. But I've always admired somebody who works. I'm trying not to swear, but works. He's a bootstrap entrepreneur. Comes here when the five as an immigrant. Just works, works and works. And is in that's an inspiration. So, yeah, um, I'd like to recommend him to speak, but he wouldn't. I know he wouldn't. He, just, he wouldn't like he wouldn't want to. He wouldn't want the publicity. Yeah. But I speak to him every hour, every day because we both and my wife said, why are you doing that? And then his wife will say, why are you speaking to Richard? And it, it's because you get an idea. Oh, that's a good idea. And I'll send it. Oh, Mike, that's a good idea. And it, it kind of snowballs from there. And, that, and that's I like that. And yeah, it is. It is inspirational. The other two people that you said inspired you were Dr. Fanny Young and, and Gwen Lund. So talk to me why they why they've inspired you. Because they really do things for other people without any reward whatsoever. And all they think about is doing good things and helping them. And they get wound up when it doesn't work out. And both of them massively inspirational. Uh, and if they're on a podcast, I pay to see that podcast and I'm sure they wouldn't do it. I mean, Gwen Lum, uh, she said one thing, the most important thing, Richard, is if you can just help one individual in your life, then you've done something good. And she goes on doing things, bringing people to us and say, well, that will make a great collaboration. You should do this. And I think that's so inspirational. And they've, I mean, in particular, Gwen has had a heartbreaking time. She actually reminded me when I was, she worked in a record shop when I was, a spotty teenager saving up to buy my first album. And I always remember there's an attractive blonde there. And I was like, oh, can I, and I buy my album. She said, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember you, but you went there, didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, and people like that do inspire me because there's no, it's not to make money. It's not for their own personal greatness. It's because that's what they do. They make people's lives better. And that is inspiring. Okay. And we've now come on to the quick fire round. So if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Good question. I think more empathy. Um, in what world do we live in that an orange man in America might be elected again with no discernible empathy whatsoever? I don't pretend to understand the politics in America, but less of that, more empathy. And really, I feel I've had a brilliant life and I've been really lucky. And that's because of the bed I was born in. And it really does, in some instances, depend on the bed you were born in. Um, I don't want to inspire a hitman after me, but if I was born in South Korea, I'd feel a lot better than being born in North Korea your lives will be completely different. So, yeah, more empathy, really. Okay. And what advice would you give to someone that wanted to change their direction but didn't know where to start? That's a good question. Um, 
people always say follow your heart, but yeah, you got to pay the bills. Um, I would say whatever you do, show masses of enthusiasm. And if anybody says to you, could you do this, this and this? Say, yeah, yeah, I'll try. Don't say, well, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. That's not what you want to hear. All I want to see is enthusiasm. And the more you put into it, um, the better it is uh, and the more you enjoy the job. Um, I'd, For example, I would hate to be a ticket collector on a on a or a ticket inspector on a train. I was on a train going to Leeds recently, and the ticket inspector was having an absolute ball. It was everybody was laughing. I said, "Well, you're unbelievable. I mean, really enjoying." It. He said, "Yeah, I used to be a teacher. Hated it. Love this." <laughs> and um, yeah, enthusiasm. Okay, and what's going to be your next big change? Slowing down a bit. I don't say that. Um, we do discuss it in succession and change and and that's probably not going to happen but it will um i'm as i say i'm surrounded by great people and um i'm getting older and i just want to see them succeed and i want them to feel the same way i feel as when you buy something you you see it you raise the money you put the students in it you get it managed by ourselves and you just and that feeling, you want to go touch it and hug it. And that was when we were in Germany for the first time. What I liked about the managers, the bank managers there, he was Euro Hippo at the time, he used to come out with us and he used to go and touch the building. And I think that's really important for them to see. Everyone was enthusiastic. So we're buying this. He said, yeah, I'm going to come and see it. Oh, yeah, that's good. And it was like hugging the building. You never buy anything without going and giving it a good hug and walking around the um, the building. Or in Germany, going on the roof. If you were to recommend a guest for me to speak to, who would it be? Right. Two people um, I would recommend. Um, PBC royalty, both of them. Um, I'd absolutely recommend Brian Welsh because we all want to know what he's doing. And he's kind of everybody's go-to expert really and he speaks a lot of sense and another one i'd like to recommend matt burton of upp he's really clever don't tell him um <laughs> but he has a really analytical approach matched with real sense of what's going on yeah don't tell him that <laughs> yeah he's gonna that's gonna go way to his head but yeah those two I'd really like to see the other people who inspire me won't come on it. Uh, although Gwen Lum, that would be a that would be a talk. But yeah, those two in the PBS world, um, Brian and Matt, definitely. I'll um, I'll edit out the bit where you said Matt was clever. Don't worry. Yeah, I'll please do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we'll we'll certainly try and get both of them on. Um, Rich, I just want to say thank you very much for for joining me on the podcast. I think you know throughout this conversation, I think one word comes to mind you mentioned it a few times is enthusiasm your enthusiasm for the sector and um for students and for for your team as well comes across and i think um you know people would be would do well to listen to this conversation and try and take some of your enthusiasm um for for the industry because we need a bit more of it in some challenging times in certain places so um so yeah thanks very much i've really enjoyed it my pleasure absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it and um It'll be interesting. I don't watch it, but I'll um I will. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Pleasure.